HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and 3, we're celebrating Mardi Gras with an ode to the king cake, the most delicious custom of carnival season. This is kind of like terrible comparison, but it's kind of like a braided New Orleans babka, if you really think about the actual technique of it. Do we know why they put a baby in the cake yet? You'd better be careful where you get that cake because your friends and coworkers in New Orleans are going to have an opinion about it. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni, and today is February 25th, 2020. We've got a great guest list joining us tonight. We're welcoming New York City Beer Week with Lambic Beers and uh, a, a great New York a DC beer operator who's opened up in New York City, uh, Greg Anger. Greg, uh, just tell us a little bit about what you're doing here and, and why you opened Grand Delancey. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, thanks, Jimmy. Great to be on the show. We uh, opened Grand Delancey Thanksgiving of last year, down in the Lower East Side. It's, um, it's part of the Market Line, which is an amazing new multi-tenant food hall uh, in the LES. And uh, Grand Delancey is just trying to kind of celebrate the, the, the broadest range of flavors and brewers, um, obviously showcasing amazing New York City brewers alongside American brewers, but then especially concerned with bringing back some of these fantastic international producers uh, that haven't gotten as much uh, play recently. Uh, we're really dedicated to service, temperature-controlled draft lines, impeccably clean glassware, knowledge-based, things like that. So just trying to match the the service and craft of um, of the brewers on the service side. I think a lot of times people curate beer lists but kind of stop there. We want to build experiences around uh, the, the greatest beers in the world. Well, welcome to the show. And, and it was great. Before the show, you, you brought in a few of these great Lambics. You, you decanted one of them, which we'll get to. But the one we have now, tell us what that is, because as you opened it, you, you said to yourself, oh, this is just like a natural wine. It's totally it. And it's, it's uh, finished on, on grapes. You find a natural wine. This is from Cantillon. Um, it's called Lambic Dioni. And it's, uh, fermented, it's a spontaneously fermented Lambic, obviously, that's aged 
on Pinot Dioni grapes uh, from the Loire Valley. This is an old school wine grape that fell out of fashion. Lots of earthy, spicy, almost like green peppery, floral, herbal characters to, characteristics to that grape. And what I love about this is there's a there's a synergy between the way that Lambic producers like Cantillon really strove to maintain the traditions of Lambic, even though no one cared about that anymore in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And certain wine um, producers in, in Loire Valley continued to grow this grape, even though it had fallen out of fashion. So it's a grape you see in, in natural wine production. And this is really co-fermented. I mean, it's basically, it's both beer and wine at the same time. Quick, let's have all the other guests introduce themselves. One of our uh, favorite beer shop owners. Uh, my name is Sadafa Smolova, uh, lady of beer, owner of Beer Town in Queens, New York. Great. Welcome to the show. Uh, B.R. Rolia with Shelton Brothers Importers. Uh, Ryan Brower. I'm our commerce editor at Gear Patrol, and I also oversee all of our beer content. Great. So, Greg, Greg this is your show, and uh, you know, talking about Lambics is very timely. Mm-hmm. Last summer, we met Danny Ruiz from Spain. He, he made a film about Lambic yes, that you're, you're showing tomorrow night at... Grand Delancey. Indeed. Um, but, you know, Lambics and Sours, you know, I think to most of our listeners, we've had Lambics. We know what they are. Sadaf, you, you brought in a Lambic. Even though you have a, a busy bottle shop, you still have a nice selection of, like, Dry Fontaine and a few other things. We do, yeah. Uh, the bottle, actually, I brought in uh, was something I traded. Uh, it's not something locally found from Degard. <laughs> yeah, I, but it is a great liquid. Um at the shop, I do see people show interest towards Lambics, uh, but sometimes differentiating what a true Lambic is compared to what an Americanized Lambic is is really the key. It's definitely yeah. a conversation. And, and BR, for you, you know, you guys, Shelton Brothers, um, my opening story is that back in 2006, I got, when I was just meeting the Shelton Brothers, I had my first keg of Cantillon, and uh, it was a goose. And at the time, that keg sat for three weeks before it, it sold out. <laughs> Which, fast forward, just in, in the early 2010s, I put that same keg on, and, and it sold out in, in 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything about the changing you know, profile oh, oh, and interest. It's uh, huge. I mean, that's how Shelton Brothers got started, was uh, Brother Joel, who unfortunately couldn't make it today, uh, was in Brussels uh, as a musician and had tasted Cantillon and came back and brought a bottle back for his brothers and said, where can we find this? And uh, a local beer shop in Brooklyn said, well, why don't you just become importers? Because you can't get it here. <laughs> so that's how, how Shelton Brothers started, was to be an importer for Cantillon. Oh, wow. And the first, uh, I believe it took Dan perhaps two years to sell the first container. It, just, it would not sell. Um, he really thought he'd probably be going out of business because there was so much beer. And when was that, 95, 96? Around then, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. we're, we're, I think we're like 22 years old now, the company. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it just it would not move. And there used to be so much. I mean, that's the biggest complaint I get from either whether it's a new bar or restaurant saying, I can't get it because I'm new, or old places say, we used to get this all the time. I can't get it. So everyone's like, I can't get it. I want it. But unfortunately, yeah, you, get it. <laughs> you know, it's a small production. Yeah. Except here today, we're drinking them all. So, Greg, when did you first, what was the first bar that you opened in D.C.? So the, the first bar that we opened in D.C. Was called, is called Church Key. And that opened in 2009. Um, so we just passed our 10th year anniversary, which is crazy. But I actually started at a place called the Bricks Keller back in 2004, which is America's first beer bar. It opened in 1957. And at that time, nobody was selling like beer, like big wide arrays of beer. So they had something like 30 different bottles or cans on the menu when they first opened and then uh, kept growing that list when they could. And so by the time I got there in the early 2000s, we had something like 
1,500 beers by, by the bottle or can or something. And numbered among those were many vintages, not just styles, but vintages of Cantillon that we could not give away. Um, back then, when people thought of Lambic, they thought of one thing, which was Lindemann's framboise. Mm-hmm. It was sweet. It was fruity. Which is what? It's like blended ale and fruit. Probably. Like, yeah, not, not a, a lot not of spontaneous. And it's only, you know, it's 3% alcohol, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we would try to get people to drink like Rosé de Gambrinus, which is the, um, you know, raspberry Lambic from Cantillon, they, people were like, this is wrong. Something's wrong with this. It's dry. It's sour. It doesn't make any sense. So those, you know, we happily drank them as a staff. Um, and, uh, and it's just shocking and mind blowing in hindsight that nobody's interested in it. I will say though, that that sweet fruit flavor interest has not gone away. So even today, while people love Lambic more than they used to in America, they still love fruited sours. And so any brewery, especially American brewers that produce fruited sours that are more sweet than sour are enjoying the same success that I think Lindemann's framboise did back in the 2000s. So how can we communicate to our customers, you know, the difference between a lambic and, you know, fruited beer, fruited American sours? I mean, I mean, you said things like natural wine. Um, is, are there any catchphrases or you know, messages that you might share? Spontaneous fermentation, um, oak barrel aging, uh, things, I mean, the thing about Lambic is that it's, it's the oldest of the modern beer styles. It's 600 years old. Before, it's a famous thing that Lambic brewers love to talk about and blenders talk about, is that like before America was discovered, this style, exactly this style, was being produced in Brussels and the surrounding Piatten lands. And so, um, the, and it has not changed since. It's, it's beer made with a, a, a large majority, 40% or so of uh, unmalted wheat, turbid mash, long boils, old hops, cool ship aging, barrel aging up to two or three years. I mean, it's not simply adding lactobacillus into a kettle to quickly sour something and then aging it on fruit puree. It's uh, the exact opposite of the kind of quicker fruited sours that we see today. Yeah, and BR, is there anything you guys in your sales sheets use to dis- differentiate Lambic from other types of sours? Not particularly. I mean, aside from, yeah, spontaneous fermentation, also that um, it's it's a beer of patience. As Greg was saying, I mean, it's age. You simply, you know, it, whether you're talking about um, a young Lambic or a Goose, you know, you, you've got to wait several years for the product to be released. Um, it's It can't, can't be rushed. You know, there's times when, when Jean from Cantillon, when he does this Vans a day, the once-a-year release, uh, draft-only release, there was one year he said just the fermentation didn't happen. I've got to push it back a couple months because I just can't let it leave the brewery. Um, and then we're actually actually now having more problems, as, as are, are many Lambic producers, where traditionally the Lambic uh, brewing season would go from November to about May because that otherwise in the summer it was getting a little bit hotter. You were getting, while you do have um, the flora and fauna, the, the bacterias that are in the brewery uh, and in the wild yeasts, in the summer you're getting some other hosts of other characters where is in the cooler months, these, these cultures that have been existing in the breweries for many, many years are able to suppress some of the unwanted characters, but in the summer it just gets too, uh, too warm. But now, with, with, with climate change, um, they're having to brew later and later, which is another issue for us in terms of supply. So the brew days are starting, getting pushed back later into November or into December, and they might not be able to brew until May. They might have to stop in April or perhaps even March. So that window is also narrowing. So there's only so much they can produce. Yeah. Right. Well, so I think, I mean, that's 100% true. And it's it's so interesting when people are complaining that they can't get enough of this stuff. It's like, oops, 
global warming is also making sure you can't get enough of this stuff. <laughs> uh, but at that said, I mean, you know, I mean, the, the biggest thing I think about Lambic is that it is, it cannot be reproduced in a lab. You, you, you can't set out by isolating different yeasts, whether they're ale yeast or lager yeast or different strains of pretendomyces, all of which are involved with Lambic fermentation or different strains of bacteria, pediococcus, lactobacillus, even a little bit of acetobacter or enterobacter. You can't, just put this together in a petri dish and make it happen. It's it, it's the most amazing thing that it, it's truly where like art and science meet. It's so empiricism. I, I can't go to Candion and and pick something out of the the, the ceiling in in the, and in the reproduce room. it. Absolutely not. And it's been tr- and I, I will I'll say this uh, unapologetically. I have never had consistently had American spontaneous beer that is the equal of the best of the classically produced lambic beers and, I, and and for that i mean cantillon dre fontaine and until to me those are the three and, and maybe some decam as well uh four that that do it exactly the real traditional way and i just don't think it's been reproduced here and i think that's climate i think that but i think it's also just wherewithal it's knowledge it's blending um uh, I just I haven't seen it being you know reproduced. You know uh, when I first heard that you're opening Grand Delancey, first I saw the team that you put together, and I know your reputation, but I was really proud of you and happy that you were coming to New York City. I felt that New York City needed. We've had such a great boost of of breweries in their tap rooms. I feel like we haven't had a, a really great uh, beer bar that's raising that's setting the bar for what beer bars should be. We had Torst about five or six years ago. That that was new and novel. But we haven't really had something like what you're doing. What is it about what you're doing that uh, we should let other people know about? Because this is the place to go in here. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you very much for uh, for saying that. Um, it's you know we've for a long time had our sights set on opening a place in New York. We love coming here. Um, we love the scene here. We love the brewers. Say more can't be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm parched. Well, I drank next? my glass and no one's filling me. Cause what do you want next? Do you're you, so good at talking, Greg. Do you want the Dre Fontana? Or do you want the Tilcan? Do you want the Guard? Uh, let's keep, you keep talking, but I'll, I'll have more of that Canty on. Oh, okay. But, um, you know, we've always, we've, we've, we've longed to... Um, be in New York. We've we've been invited. We, we we've met people who have asked us to come up and do places here before. Um, the Grand Delancey space in Lower East Side made a lot of sense for us. Now as a company, we've developed a really great team, so we were ready to grow. Uh, we've met a lot of great people in New York. You know, like people like Alex Zolli, yeah. uh, who's you know our AGM there. Sam Schwartz, who's our GM, and an amazing team. I was really uh, blown away by the people we met um, and that work at the Grand Delancey. They are uh, amazing. Um, the builders of experience around these beers. But, um, you know, I think what we, we set out to do is to just consistently elevate the experience of drinking and, and tasting craft beer. I think a lot of um, bottle shops and restaurants and beer bars and brewery tap rooms are good at acquiring or producing um, liquid. And then they kind of stop short when it comes to making sure that um, glassware is is well appointed and 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 really really um, you know ready for the and pours are perfect that beers are delivered with full heads on them um, that temperature is attended to that beer and food pairing is still attended to a, a lot of these things were big when I first started you know 15 years ago and we we've been dr- hitting the drum ever since but but it's gone away from that a little bit it's been more about just collecting ticking 
lining up, and trading. And cans are probably part of that. Big time. Yeah. I mean, the fact that people drink straight from cans. I mean, I don't mind if you do that. It's fine. But you get so much more out of putting it into a glass. There's more uh, pomp and circumstance to it. It's a, it's more of an experience. And you access the aromas much more. I mean, way. definitely with you, uh, the ex- it's like what you get is, is what... It's better than advertised, just so you know. Thank the you. The other day, uh, you emailed me about about coming on the air, and you asked me if you needed to bring glassware for the beer. <laughs> and I thought about it. You're the first guest that's ever asked to bring glassware. And um, um, I was like, well, I think Roberta's has some pretty good wine glasses. Yeah, yeah, totally. But, um, and, and on our way in, tell us about the decanting. You know, tell us about the, sure. that beer and why you brought it for the show, mm-hmm. but why. And, so I brought and this you from... knew to decant it before we... Right, yeah. So, so, you know, we have a number of bars and restaurants in D.C., and that's where I'm uh, located. Uh, neighborhood Restaurant Group, our group, is located. So I came up on the train yesterday, and I brought these bottles. So Shelton Brothers, who are very, very dear friends of mine, uh, obviously, as is PR, um, take good care of us. And so we were actually able to get a slew of specialty Fontaine and beers in D.C., um, that aren't yet available in New York. So I bootlegged this bottle, which is um, Zena E Frontera. It's batch six, which came from, uh, the, it, was, it was bottled in 2017, 2018 season. And um, this is a beer that's aged in, um, it ended up being a dozen different sherry barrels, uh, about three quarters of which were Olorosa sherry, which is medium dry, lots of fruit, um, lots of nuttiness, walnut characteristics to, to, the, to, the, to the fortified wine. And then the other quarter being PX sherry barrels, which are super sweet, figgy, uh, raisiny. And um, it's it's year and a half old uh, Lambic brewed exclusively by Dre Fontanen that has been aged in their oak fooders for a year and a half, then goes into those sherry barrels for a year, and then gets um, blended. It picks up a quite a bit of, of sediment from the barrels itself. So that's why we like to decant it. But also we find by decanting it, we really bring out some of those when it's, when it's kind of just poured, it's really like tangy and fruity, but as it develops in the decanter, you get all those sherry characteristics, that toast, that nut nuttiness, the bready qualities, the sweetness come out. So Hopefully, and uh, you bet you were impressed that Roberta's bartender had a decanter for you too. I know, and it, it had a giant Erlenmeyer flask of a thousand <laughs> milliliters. <laughs> now, Ryan, you, you came in with a basically you, you, every episode you've been on, you come in with almost a book's worth of questions, and I respect you as a journalist. What's what's a good question to tie in? Let's keep talking about Lambics because we, we Grand Delancey is a great bar, and we're, we're only going to do more with you guys. But what, you have a question about Lambics? Yeah, yeah, I, I think you kind of mentioned it, Greg, that like. Brewers maybe American brewers maybe kind of trying to not not that they're intentionally capitalizing, but they are the the wave of sour beers in America might not be what these guys have done traditionally yeah. for years, mm-hmm. and some of these brewers are capitalizing on that with like kettle sour, so I guess like what what is some of that confusion around what a sour beer is for an American drinker and how like I feel like we still don't know how to define that here. For right. Drinkers. Well, yeah. I think I think it all goes back to what I was saying before. Is back in like the the early two thousands when I first got interested and involved with beer, you could call Lindemann's Framboise and Cantillon Rosé de Gambrinus loosely sours, mm-hmm. but that's kind of a a misnomer as far as a categoric misnomer because they could not be more different. One Cantillon is is dry. It's tart. It's not sour, even. I would say it's more like, you know, acidic. It's wine-like. It's Venice. Uh, the other is 
deliberately richer and sweeter and frankly more accessible, more mainstream. It's you know it, it fits in there, and I think that modern craft beer has has capitalized on that and good for them. I love hazy IPAs. I love pastry stouts, and I love fruited sours. So I by no means I'm talking against those, but I also love Lambic. And I think that even to think about like a fruited sour that's loaded up with purees and vanilla and lactose alongside Cantillon, I just think they're completely different. And you're seeing that now because Jester King, Allagash, they make amazing spontaneous beers. But I think that some of the popularity of their, even their spontaneous beers is lagging in the face of 16 ounce cans of like passion fruit Oh, definitely. Kettle sours, you know. So I think that, you know, it, they're just completely, they're a different family altogether. So what does that education process look like? And I, I think you can speak to this a little too, Sadaf. But, you know, Greg, I know you have the, you know, you have your beer flavor profiles that you're very well known for on all your menus. Um, but say a customer wants, you know, they come in and they say sour. You know, how, how do you guide them and steer them and, you know, maybe eventually get to a land right. potentially. Well, I think so. So I'm glad you mentioned. So this beer flavor profile, we, we came up with this back in 2006 uh, when we opened our first beer-centric restaurant called Rustico in Alexandria, Virginia. And at that time, nobody was drinking craft beer in Alexandria. They were drinking uh, Guinness, which I still enjoy very much. Um, but then like, you know, Paps, Magic Hat Number 9, Pilsner, Kell, like it was very basic. So when I came in and tried to bring a lot of these new flavors in, I didn't want to have to rely on styles or regions because I thought that would be inaccessible. So we created this major flavor profiling system that made it easier to navigate. But even in the tart and funky category, within that category, we've had to have subcategories to to delineate between this because you're right. Somebody comes in and goes, I like sours. We're like, oh, have at it. Mm -hmm. We're going to disappoint a lot of people. It's like when people come in today and they go, I like IPA. A lot of people don't want hazy IPA anymore. They're starting to move back to bitterness and West Coast Mm -hmm. styles and such. So we have to have these subcategories. But I think it starts from just saying, you know, like, um, okay, we have, there's a huge array of of fruited sours or unfruited sours out there. Are you interested in fruit? Not fruit. Are you interested in sweet, sour, funk? You know, what, what do you like? And we can pretty quickly kind of determine where we need to take them. And the last thing I'll say on this is that everybody gets tired with the beer that they drink all the time. So my, my, my plan right now and my hope is that everybody's been drinking a lot of the sweeter stuff and I'm seeing it already. They're coming back to dry porter, uh, English bitters Mm. on cask, lambic, uh, dry pilsner because, and then again, in five years from now, nobody's going to be drinking that and they're going to want pastry stout and fruit stout, but it's a beautiful revolution that continues. Save to your recipes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that, you want to add anything? Uh, no, I agree. I, I think tasting points is a key um, sort of, form, you know, a key method in the formula. You know, if somebody mm-hmm. comes in, they're asking for sours to kind of navigate them with, uh, you know, non-biased descriptions and kind of help them figure out exactly what they're looking for is the key because the, the broad range of sour beer uh, you don't want to disappoint the customer. You want to direct them to something they're going to enjoy. They're going to come back. They're going to ask you for your advice again. Uh, but yeah, tasting points are a keynote. Yeah. Mind if I ask? Because so you're out in Ozone Park in mm-hmm. Queens. So you have a like a what did it, did it used to be a deli or some kind of no other was, license? It was actually an operating beer store. Um, it was owned by my dad previously. Uh, he just took it in as like more of a business motive. I got involved, got really passionate about the beer. 
Uh, a few years later, my dad had approached my husband and I. He wanted to get out of the business. He approached us to see if we wanted to purchase it from him. And we were able to really rebrand and take it into a direction where I could let that passion flow. And uh, it's awesome to bring that to a community where there's definitely a lack of beer culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we're very proud of it. And then just off, off topic, I know you brought a couple beers. What did you bring for us? Besides the Lambic. Uh, I have the Maud Dube, which is the Schwarz beer from, uh, it was a collaboration with Single Cut and KCBC. Uh, and then I also have a Hellas uh, from Westbrook. Yes, just That's a great. nice so break. Th- those are, those are things that you like that you're, you're I do, I do. I, I, I definitely enjoy beer all around, and I find something fitting for the mood. Uh, but everything from a Lambic to uh, an Imperial Stout to a, a great Keller, I, I enjoy a lot of it all, yeah. That's great. You know, I'm going to make a toast to everybody because this is kind of a fun show. What's, <laughs> what's also great about uh, putting the word out about this show and about the Lambic film screening tomorrow night at Grand Delancey is seeing the number of people, whether they're on Instagram, who have only posting about Lambics that they're drinking or, or subgroups on Facebook, you know, Canalon enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very encouraging because I feel like the, the people are out there. They are. And they kind of have been like, well, they seem like they've been quiet because other they're not lining up for uh, the tradable cans and things like that. They, they, there's like these cool subcultures of beer that I think are coming back a little bit. I mean, the other day, um, we and actually a lot at Grand Delancey, we have Real Ale there. And it was so funny when I was telling people we were opening this place uh, in the Lower East Side. Cask that we were going to have mm-hmm. Cask Ale. I, oh, yeah. They may not have laughed in my face, like, but they they were thinking it. They're like, "Oh God, like that's stupid," and uh, probably by a business perspective, it is silly. But the, the the biggest thing I would say I want everybody to think about when, when you're thinking about like beers and what you pay for beer and everything else is that blended pricing is the way to go. You should not mark everything up equally. So if I want to serve real ale from Britain on cask in the Lower East Side. Don't serve it in a 10-ounce pour. That's ridiculous. That's, nobody should ever drink real out the way. If that's the only way you can serve it, then don't do it. Put it in a 20-ounce imperial pint. And yes, should you charge $15 for it? Absolutely not. I think it should not be higher than $9 for 20 ounces of this amazing beer. But that just means that you find another beer that's a little bit more approachable, inexpensive, and raise the price just a tad but you won't on that mention one. those. <laughs> well, I can mention my brewery, Blue Jacket. It's, yeah. it's footing the bill for that. So we have a brewery <laughs> down in D.C. called Blue Jacket. Makes amazing beers, primarily lagers. And, um, you know, we ship those up through Union Beer, and they do a great job with our, our beer up here. And I charge a little bit more for Blue Jacket to, you know, offset the pricing we get on those <laughs> on those things. So it's, it's, it's really fun. So anyways, I've had people come in who are like, we heard you have Cascale. Now, it's not a lot of people, admittedly, but uh, here and there, they're like, wow. And they sit there and they'll just drink sub five or 4% beer in a session and leave. And I feel like we're adding something to the conversation. Are you doing a, what, what do you have on cask right now? On, so or you caught me right now week. with it. Well, I mean, so right now we're waiting on a shipment from Fine Hills, which is one of the greatest um, British brewers from Scotland, from Loch Fine. Um, and they're going to uh, supply a lot of those. Um, but right now, we actually have Bell's Two Hearted mm. on cask, mm-hmm. which is classic beer in any iteration. But on cask, it is magic. It was so good. I was there like a month ago, and I had both the Two Hearted cask and the Two Hearted vanilla bourbon uh, black oh, note. Yeah, black, uh, oh. 
I had two of those. Had, yeah. <laughs> it, was, luckily, it was absolutely amazing. They sent us fresher cast, so it's not the same cast. <laughs> <as you're laughs> <Yeah. not>. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a whole other show, and we're, do, right. we're doing a, a cast oh, right. show with Mike coming yeah. up. Yeah. Mike from Dutch of Sales. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ryan, another question for you because you've got some great questions yeah i think greg too just what you've noticed maybe in some differences in the dc beer scene because you've been established Mm -hmm. there for so long and the new york city beer scene and how you've kind of had to maybe adapt to that and um what you've learned so far i guess only being open a few months here yeah i would say i mean the, the new york city beer scene is uh amazing um the the amount of really great beer that's kind of available in lots of places is was surprising to me. Like just to roll into a, a, sta- a, a random bar and find beers that I want to drink that are well cared for. Um, I would say that the, the level of of beer throughout the city is very high, like con- with consistency. And that's at bars and restaurants, not just uh, obviously at the breweries. Um, so that, that's been a really amazing thing to say. I think the people are incredibly welcoming we've been everybody has been super nice to us since we've been here there hasn't been like any kind of competitive spirit or anything like that in fact last night i was hanging out at ivan ramen there was an oxbow and interboro event it was really fun zach the gm there treated us really well uh, they haven't i mean how cool is it to go to a place like ivan ramen and have that beer list <laughs> that, that's another thing about new york it's like there's just some sneaky incredible beer lists in places you would not expect um, so all positives there. I will say that I think that pricing was a little bit um, surprising to me. I think that beer is more expensive than I expected here. Mm. Um, and, you know, listen, I, I, like rents are real. Labor is real. I'm not begrudging anybody, but it was it, it's it's kind of a, it's a pricey thing. I can see how it'd be difficult to drink well in New York um, for, for some people. Yeah, I noticed that. Uh I've been to the Grand Delancey uh, one time so far, and I noticed that on your menus that it, it is comparably affordable to other things. You're going to find, you know, even the same stuff on tap somewhere else, you know, might be a few bucks cheaper because of what you were saying earlier. Yeah, yeah. And I think, and I want to say there too, it's not like we're just trying to like undercut the conversation yeah, by yeah. any means. But actually, the other thing about Grand Delancey is that we don't have a kitchen. We don't have some of the expenses that a lot of bars and restaurants do have. We have an amazing array of kitchens operated independently in the food hall. And so you can sit down at Grand Delancey and order food from all of them. But does somebody pick it up and deliver it to your table? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Your your staff goes. Yeah, we have our food food runners. Yeah. But I mean, that that helps us keep down the cost. So we can offer, you know, beers at a little bit more of an affordable pricing. But I do think, again, back to that blending thing. You'd be surprised how how you can still get your costs right mm-hmm. um, by adjusting certain prices up and down. Yeah, great. Um, BR, you know, uh, when Grand Delancey opened, you know, I, they had a great photo of all, all these bottled beers they had. I know that, that you've got a few of your beers there on tap as well. Um, just tell us what it means for you guys to have a place like Grand Delancey opening in New York City. Well, it's terrible for me personally because I live like a 10-minute bike ride away. Um, we but, love it. But no, I mean, <laughs> as what, what, what Greg was saying about, about pricing, I mean, that's what we try to impress beer, on, right? on our distributors and hope that they also impress that upon accounts is that, yeah, please don't, because it's simply because it's expensive, whether it's because of the method of manufacture or because it's coming you know, from the tip top of Norway and we've got a lot of transit fees uh, you know, and customs, you know, try to make it a way you, you don't want to turn people off. You don't want to have someone who only has, okay, well, I've got an eight ounce pour and it's costing me $20 or something. 
try to do that blended blended pricing uh, so that people we don't. So we're not talking about blending two beers in no. one glass. <laughs> You're talking about that. Some yeah, some so beers you, you mark, up, mark higher up higher and others where, lesser you know, I mean, margins. Just take for example, say you know a, a, a macro an, an industrial light lager. You know you can charge X amount. You know you can charge a lot more for your Budweiser or whatever if you if you, you actually serve like that. Ten or twelve bucks for it. Yeah, and people will pay that. But uh, you know, and then maybe bring it down a little bit on these other beers. Just we want people to enjoy these beers, but and we try to keep on our end. We try to keep our pricing really low as well. You know, obviously with a three-tier system, then you, you involve the distributors and then on to the, the bars and restaurants. Um, but ideally, we would like it to be accessible. But um, the, but it's great. Also, you know, the, the all the Greg's bars and, and restaurants have always been big supporters of across the spectrum for our portfolio, uh, not just for the Cantillon, the Dre Fontaine, and, but also uh, things like Coniston Bluebird Bitter, On Cask, uh, the Fine Ales from Amazing. Scotland, Daranka, De La Seine, Mars. Oh, Logie, yeah. I think the other thing you remember is like, when we pour so many of these beers, just the way that Shelton Brothers imports so many of these beers, not to make money, but to share these stories and these experiences. It sounds like, I don't know, like sentimental or something, but truly that's the idea. So it does us no good to price them prohibitively. And so if there's ways that you can price them, uh, you know, to, to attract new uh, drinkers, that really has to be done. Otherwise, there's no point in bringing them in at all or even having them around. So a lot of this is like an effort just to, to frankly, proselytize uh, as zealots to make sure that people are drinking what we believe to be the best beer. It's good hospitality. And um, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a minute on Beer Sessions Radio. Stay with us. My name is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super-duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, very... Very, very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Check us out, heritageradionetwork.org. Become a member on Heritage Radio Network. All right, uh, Sadat, you were just asking a question. You can ask it again. Uh, Yeah, well, um, Ryan kind of touched on it. I mean, just seeing the difference in the beer scene from D.C. to New York, uh, I know you touched on, like, um, just, uh, you know, what the breweries are about here. Do you notice a difference in what what the consumers are looking for? Do you notice, like, a difference in what, what kind of beer the crowd is responding to in D.C. versus New York? Um, that's a, that's a, great a great question. question. And, and to be honest, we've just been here for three months. So it's like I think we have a lot more to learn that's been in the winter. <laughs> so we'll see. But there's a lot more people in new york you know and like i guess it sounds yes. simplistic but that means that there's a lot more palettes um one thing i can say is that we opened with we always try to have a really great array of you know rare beers from the coolest new brewers classics but then just standard beers that we all love so we always have something on draft if not more than something one or two things on draft from sierra nevada uh i love that brewery dearly Allagash, mm-hmm. Bells, brewers like this. Yeah. And in DC, those they tend to crush alongside the rare stuff. Here, and this might just be because we're new and people are still finding us, maybe we're just like a destination for a lot of beer geeks. Those beers have not moved as quickly as I expected. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a lot more geeky beer and a lot more lager beer. Um, and not and not just like lager for lager's sake, like 
cool loggers, great loggers. Like Dan Suarez sends us kegs in Manhattan, which is amazing that he does that. And like getting Hill Farm said, Mary. Um, but then, of course, all the Mars beers that we get, like Helen und Geschmundet and Pilsner, Weissanoa, Monksenbacher. Um, I think when I, when I met you there last month, I had the Ganstaller. Yeah, Ganstaller, Keller beer. Yeah, exactly. So, like, people are crushing those. And I think part of that is because we're serving them in large uh, formats. Yeah. I, I had a very cool, uh, got an authentic kind of mug. Yeah, Stein. Yeah, like stone earthenware kind of That's mug. Cool. So, yeah. So, I think that, that has been different. It's been a little bit geekier. Um, with volume, which has been cool. cool. Actually, one thing about that, um, we're also used to drinking out of glassware, but when, when I drink like a Gonstaller out of that, that ceramic yeah, yeah. mug, it keeps it even colder. Totally. So why aren't more people using other materials than just glass? They're expensive, I think, but, um, <laughs> but they're cool to have. Also, it can be hard for people. To, we really dial in our, our, our draft system with flow control faucets and side pulls and stuff so that we can make sure to dispense properly. But the thing about ceramic is, and the reason why people used to use them in the old days is because they keep the beer cold, mm -hmm. but also you wouldn't have to look at that murky Keller beer that within. So, But it can be hard to really make sure that you have the right amount of beer and head in there. I think that might be some of the reason why. Yeah, beer. Um, some of these the product. I know you don't represent all, all the the different countries, but in particular the German lagers like the, the Mars, the Gonstaller. Um, you know, how are those? How is this doing for you? Because for me, that's the beer I want to drink whenever uh, I'm out. Better and better. I mean, when we initially started with those, you know, we were trying to preach the gospel of of pilsners and lagers, and no one was listening. Um, and now people are finally coming around to it. And as, as Greg was saying, there's some really good ones being done. You know, Suarez, Dan Suarez is doing amazing, amazing lagers. Um, so there's a lot of American ones that are very flavorful yet sessionable. Um, so, you know, for us, it's, it's great. And that's a style we've always enjoyed. Great. And Greg, uh, what's this second beer that we're drinking of yours? Uh, yeah, this is from Tolkien, Pierre Tolkien. Uh, I always call it Tilquin. <laughs> <laughs> Phonetic. Uh, this is Myrtille Sauvage, so it's a, um, a blueberry uh, lambic that's brand new. Um, I also had to bring this up from D.C. because it's not quite yet available in New York, although it's coming soon via Brian Ewing and 12% imports. Um, it's a you know, two-year-old lambic uh, blended from uh, Lindemann's, Bone, uh, Girardin, and then aged... Um, for a number of months on, I think it's two or th I think 200 grams per liter of blueberries and um, magnificent. Pierre Token is incredible. He's since 2000, I think 11, uh, been blending masterful uh, lambics um, in Wallonia, which is the French speaking south of, of Belgium. He's the only one in Wallonia. Everybody else is closer to the city of Brussels and the Payotin land uh, and just uh, phenomenal stuff. So the tradition of blending. Because there, there's some brewers, but like, so Tilken is a blender. Mm -hmm. um, how did that evolve or, or you yeah. know, what are they actually doing? So, you know, and the other thing a lot of people don't realize is that Cantillon started out as a blender in 1900 and, and only started brewing uh, in 1938. Um, you know, I think blenders began, I believe, because of bottling. So bottling for beer was not uh, available until really the later 19th century. Glass was expensive, and it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that it was available to more and more people. So you had beer being consumed directly out of small wooden or large wooden casks. Um, and so when bottles became available, the brewers did not bottle. You'd have um, 
bartender, you know, publicans who would buy barrels. They would serve them from barrel, but if the barrel got older, then they would transfer it into bottle. And then over time, I think they started to blend. They started to uh, macerate some of their lambics on fruits, like cherries for creek and raspberries for framboise. So really, it was a kind of a, a cottage industry that began via restaurateurs and publicans. And Joy Fontainen in the 1950s was a, a restaurant and blender, and that happened for the next 50 years until they started actually brewing. BR. Yeah, so I mean, there was a tradition in Belgium of it was very separate. You would have a lot of brewers who wouldn't release to the general public, where you would have these blenders uh, who were the ones who were taking uh, different and blending from, as, as Tilken does, blending from different producers, different brewers, not necessarily blending one, two, and three year old lambics from simply one specific brewer. Uh, and it was, it, and there are, they, they really aim to make a consistent product. So they're very, very talented. And it was passed down, for example, Dre Fontaine and Armand de Belder, he learned this from his father. His father was the blender before him. And learning the tricks of, you know, well, this one, you, this is the flavor profile we're looking for. Perhaps this year we're blending 20% of this one, 30% of that one. Uh, and next year we're going to change, you know, add in another 50% of this other one, which we weren't using last year. Really dependent because these beers do change, whether because of the weather, because of the ingredients, because of the, the yeast and the fruits. You know, the fruit harvest can change from year to year. You might have more residual sugar in some fruits uh, in, in some years. Uh, so it was it was a very, uh, you know, very precise and, and difficult job at the time. And it's it's interesting to see now, you know, more and more of the breweries are also doing their own blending. But um, there are still some you know, blenders who exist, which is great. It's an old, 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 old style. And, you know, one thing that I learned recently, actually, by previewing the, the film that we're that we're screening tomorrow, Grand Delancey, is that. You know, so there's brewers of Lambic. And in, in, in the early 20th century, before the First World War, there were about 500 um, brewers and blenders of Lambic in, in, in Belgium. Um, by 1992, wow, there were like eight or uh, ten, something like that. Yeah. So um, one of the reasons for that, uh, for the decline, was that a lot of brewers were selling to blenders. Um, but they were all uh, blenders of Lambic. But they were also selling Lambic to brewers of top fermented beer, brewers who make ale. Because before modern science really took hold in Belgian brewing, pasteurization, filtration, stainless steel, things like that, uh, modern yeast science, one of the ways that brewers figured out to make their beers shelf stable was by blending in lambic to uh, a top fermented ale. Because by blending in lambic, you lower the pH. And in a low pH environment, fewer and fewer bacteria can interrupt and infect the beer. It's the same way reason why we pickle vegetables and, and, and meats and things like that, right? So brewers of like ales, strong ales, would blend in a little bit of Lambic and they'd buy from the Lambic producers just to keep the beer and provide a little bit of like a, a, a crisp, refreshing brightness to the beer. Well, once science took hold, they stopped doing that. So the, the brewers suddenly had far fewer outlets. Now they're just selling to um, consumers or to blenders and then after World War so it's II, like I'm on antibiotics and I have to I have to take a probiotic right, yeah. instead of just eating my fermented cabbage. Right, that would keep it right. And so then the problem, the next problem though, is after World War II, the Americans. This is the famous story. Go to Europe, they bring Coca-Cola with them. Everybody develops a sweet tooth, and now nobody wants Lambic anymore. So now it's not just the top fermenting brewers who don't want Lambic. Now the general public doesn't want it as much. And by the time you get to the 60s, 70s, and 80s, brewers are closing like wildfire. Um, or they're starting to back sweeten their lambic, like Lindemans, Detroc, Timmermans, and that's the way that those survived. 
That's a pretty amazing story. I, I didn't know about that. I didn't know about the blending. Uh, Sadaf, I think you did some reading about Lambics. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, like, the history of Lambics, like you mentioned, like, you know, there's so much... I, uh, it's like a dying breed almost, you know, like there's not a lot of people left doing it. And, uh, it's definitely an art. Uh, what you mentioned earlier, this connection between science and art, science and nature, you know, it can only be created in this one Valley. Totally. Uh, it is just so amazing. I, the storytelling behind Lembic is really something. Yeah. There's one thing like for American, uh, brewers or blenders, Lambic is protected. It, it's a term just for certain beers made in Belgium. That's, is that correct? Um, yes. But on that note, so and goose too. What can what can American brewers use? I've I've heard terms like wild, méthode um, traditionnelle has been one that's been embraced, spontaneous, um, but they have been told please do not use lambic or goose um, in the beer. Right. Yeah, I, I kind of was going to bring this up. You know, it happened a few years ago, but the whole Jester King versus Horal. Uh, kind of controversy. And Why don't you tell us what that was? So Jester Kings in Texas. I mean, Greg probably knows a little bit more about it than I do. Um, but yeah, essentially just them not being able to use the word lambic and um, them trying or, to come or up with... It was Maytold Goose because they were blending one, two, True. and three-year-old spontaneous beer. They said Maytold Goose rather than Goose. It's like in the Goose method. And Horal, um, which is the high council for craft of, of lambic brewing, said... Please don't use that so that's term. A Belgi- I thought it was an American radical group. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, and and they said no. Please, please, uh, please do not. And you Thou know, shalt it, not speak. Yeah, and Jeff Stuffings um, at Jester King and the guys at Black Project and stuff said, yeah, we got it, and they and they changed um, because of that. So it is protected now, and it should be. That said, you know, it's been a little bit of a controversy because some brewers of and blenders of Lambic are not in Haral anymore. Cantillon has never been in. Uh, Dre Fontaine and, and Girardin just left. And one of the reasons is that there is a divide between industrial Lambic, um, Lambic that's made by brewers like Lindemans and, and Bone and Detroit and Timmermans and even Bellevue, which is AB-owned, uh, and, and Mort Subit. These brewers have increasingly made traditional Lambic because it's now popular, mm-hmm. but they still make non-traditional lambic and unfortunately they will call a goose that's been blended with top fermented ale pasteurized and filtered goose and then they'll call one that's more traditional oud goose and i know jean venois from cantillon has constantly said please do not call anything you do that's not traditional goose and so he's famously kind of said like i i believe that jester king should be able to call their beer goose because if we're going to let some of these other guys bellevue call their goose goose then we've, we've lost it already yeah, I, I I was chatting with a friend about it, and he was almost like, he's like, isn't it sort of equatable to if Pilsen said you can't use the word Pilsner if it's not produced in Pilsen? You know, not not quite, because no. it's not quite the a method for doing it, right. but, you know, it, it was an interesting... Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I know, and, and some American brewers were also wanted to use, and I, I know that, that some of the, the Belgian producers were fine with this as well, of saying, you know, Lambic style, right. goose style, or mm-hmm. method goose, right. um, it's, it's to just as, you know, a Pilsner style. Um, I mean, I think it is important when you look at, uh, in France, with the, the AOC, uh, the Appellation de Organisation, 
oh, oh, now I'm forgetting my French. This is terrible. Um, Contrôlé, but um, where, like Roquefort, for example. You've been away too long. I've been away too long. <laughs> Roquefort can only be made in France, in a certain area in France, by a certain method. And I have no problem with saying that lambic and goose can only be made in the Zen Valley of Belgium because these microorganisms, these wild yeasts, yeah. those are native there. With Jester King wanting to make a traditional Texas lambic style, I have I see no problem in that. I just right. they shouldn't just call it simply lambic or so simply. La- I would I would advocate but, that as well yeah. using the term lambic style. But yeah, as you know, especially Jean gets very upset with a lot of these the industrial producers who are using sweeteners, who are using uh, syrups, who are pasteurizing, which lambic is never pasteurized traditionally. Um, you know, and they're they're uh, they're sometimes even clarifying it. Just all sorts of things that a major industrial brewery does. It really has no relation whatsoever uh, to a traditional lambic. I would say that a mass-produced uh, industrial lager is actually closer to a pilsner to a, a lot right. than a mass-produced lambic is is to a traditional lambic. You know, one thing we're going to wrap up soon. So if everyone has a last question or comment, let's get them ready. But Greg, what what you mentioned about um, this the traditional spontaneous lambic beers having this property of, of preserving other beers and pH balance. I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, th- th- this is, is this what our ancestors knew? Like, it, it's like we're, they were witches making beer and it was good for you. Right. And maybe that's when you can say that beer is good for you. Oh, it definitely is. And, and this is, the, it's the most, it's the coolest thing, right? To think that for 600 years, People in this little area in in Belgium, uh, which you know Belgium as a country didn't exist uh, in name until the you know 150 years ago or something. So, have been making this beer exactly like this with no understanding of uh, dextrins or mash temp or pH or yeast science. It was just empiricism. If it worked, they did it. If it didn't, they did not. And it's worked. And it's worth the whole time. It's, it's really, really uh, amazing to look back and know that when we taste these beers, we're tasting historic flavor you know, uh, in a way that no other beer can, can provide. And I just want to say what brought us together was last fall after the festival, um, Danny Ruiz, who's a filmmaker, was, was in New York with his friends from Napa Beer. And he, he told us about the beers. If you look up lambic.tv, that's the website for, for, for what, uh, or is it survey.tv? Survey. Survey.tv is Danny Ruiz. But um, it's funny because I was like, we got we to gotta screen this during beer week. And next thing I know, he had talked to you, Greg. <laughs> and what I love is, uh, cheers to you, man. We're going to toast with this next beer. That you are you are screening this film at your bar tomorrow night tomorrow for night. free, and you're also going to have an awesome selection of lambics. Yes, indeed, we're going to have. Um, uh, so tomorrow doors open for the event at five. Uh, we're going to have Cantillon Fufun on draft, Cantillon Creek on draft, um, a host of Dre Fontaine and Token beers available. Um, What's the tra- there's a train that's really close to to the Essex Market area. Essex F-train. market line F train F and M F on uh, Essex and Delancey. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty easy to get to. So I just poured us the um, uh, Zena E Frontera that we mentioned earlier. Um, it's at the perfect tap now. It's truly opened up and um, says uh, amazing sherry finished uh, lambic from Dre Fontana. Special. It's been open for about an hour and we're gonna enjoy it. And let, you know, I love this. Also, this uh, you know the craze for natural wine. Part of it's the palate. Be- beyond the backstory, the palate is is this kind of it's a dryness. 
and I feel like the same descriptors for what people like in natural wine is, is what we're tasting in these natural beers. Totally. Mm -hmm. And the body, the richness on this is incredible. Like it, it just provides so much like a round full, um, not sweetness, but there's, there's like a little, it feels like it's going sweet. Then it gets dry. Uh, the tannins and the tartness are going back and forth, like in a rhythm, uh, on the palate and, Huge, huge aromas. You know, Dre Montana is known for having this kind of like sesame seed and green apple character, and that still comes through here. Mm -hmm. And I also find that they also have this uh, sort of a petrol aroma yeah, and flavor, yeah, totally. in, which doesn't sound appetizing, but it's wonderful, and it's just the signature note where it just blends in so well with the, the wood character and the, yeah. the sort of fruity esters to it. So we're going to wrap up, Sadaf. Anything else you want to say? Uh, Tell no. us about your place, because I can't I'm wait to a, visit I'm on Queens. You I'm, have yeah. to come visit my place. Where is it? <laughs> uh, it's right off of uh, Cross Bay Boulevard, a main boulevard that kind of runs through everything from Queens Boulevard all the way down to the Rockaways. Um, yeah, I, we cater to all types of beer drinkers. If I was going out to the Rockaways, I could stop by and grab Oh, definitely. Some beers. Yes, yeah. yes. I, we find that in the summertime, we definitely see an increase in business <laughs> due to that destination point. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, definitely come visit. We we love to cater to all type of beer drinkers. I love to have a wide variety of beers. Um, I love the conversation I have with people. I love that uh, because of being off of this like main road, I get all types of customers, whether they're looking for something specific or want to uh, want to get opened up to something new, but it's great. It's great having a, a place like that. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on and Thank check her out at lady of beer. Yes. But what's, what's the Instagram for your store? Uh, it's B town brews, uh, beer town in ozone park, Queens. Yep. B town and Ryan, anything, uh, so any beer stories coming up on gear patrol? Um, we just published at the end of last week. I did a, uh, I think you saw it, Jimmy, the 15 best grocery store IPA. So basically IPAs you can find anywhere in the country. Um, which, you know, is uh, something all of us do from time to time. And uh, we're working on a few other things. Uh, we're going to do like a beer week in March, uh, mid-March, just kind of uh, package a bunch of stories. So we've got that uh, piece with Ken Grossman still coming up. Uh, we're going to hold it for that. And, uh, yeah. That's great. Well, I'm just so happy to have you guys all on. Everyone, once, once again, uh, Greg and BR, just sign off, say your name, and so everyone can hear your voice one more time. Uh, BR Rolia with Shelton Brothers Importers. And I'm Craig Engert with Grand Delancey. Uh, thanks, Jimmy, for having us on today. It's great. Thank so you. tomorrow night, if you're in New York listening live, we'll be at Grand Delancey, 7 p.m., the screening of Lambic, the film. Um, thanks so much for joining us here on the Heritage Radio Network. Big shout-out to our producer, Dylan Hoyer, intern Kevin Barnum-Chang, and engineer extraordinaire Matt Patterson. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! <laughs> Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.